Last Sunday, we took a break from our travels in the book of Acts to examine the importance of girding yourself with truth. And as we pointed out, if truth is indeed the battle cry of light, when it invades the darkness, then by nature, truth provokes a counterattack. As presented in the way that the world has treated Jesus, how people respond to truth often directly determines how they respond or react to the person speaking said truth. Though these men, here at the end of Acts chapter 7, though they brought Stephen to trial, accused him of blasphemy, as we've seen over the last couple weeks, Stephen doesn't mount a defense. Instead, he turns the tables. He flips the script. Instead, Stephen goes back to their history. He uses scripture, and he puts these men on trial themselves. And the verdict? Well, we're told that these religious leaders were stiff-necked. They were stubborn. They were uncircumcised in heart. On the outward appearance, they, uh, they looked as though they were following God, but their heart, their heart wasn't tuned to the Lord. They were uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Well, it's a pretty bold claim. It's a verdict from on high. It's truth. These men fit this description. But as we're about to see in the way that they end up now reacting to Stephen, when a person opposes the truth, they will inevitably oppose the truth speaker. None truer than the story of Stephen. In much the same way, as their fathers, even knowing the truth, these religious men who had heard Jesus speak, who had seen the grace in which he died, who heard the rumors of the resurrection to the point that they tried to cover it up, these men knowing the truth, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the incredible signs and wonders performed by the apostles, the words of Stephen were told that they were resisting. They were still resisting. Literally, they were opposing or striving against the will of God. And Stephen, when he closes his sermon, he leaves them not with a, a word of condemnation, but a word of encouragement. Though they had been stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard of ears, though they had resisted Jesus and the Holy Spirit, though they had done all of these things, if they at this point, and it's the heart of the preacher, to the audience if they would stop, stop it, stop resisting, then God was more than willing to give them a second chance if only they had set, if only they had accept Christ. Well, verse 54, we left off verse 53, we pick up with verse 54, Acts 7, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Luke, our author, tells us that as a result of Stephen's message, two things take place. First, they were cut to the heart. The truth literally was like a dagger that was piercing their very souls. They knew what Stephen was saying was true, and yet their collective conscience bore witness that they couldn't accept it. They were prideful. They refused to humble themselves. They were cut. They knew it. They could feel it. They could sense it. But their reaction, they gnash at him with their teeth. While being cut to the heart might have been the spiritual response, 
because they now doubled down on their resistance. This gnashing, or literally grinding of their teeth, describes the physical reaction. They're so mad. They're cut to the heart. They sense the conviction. They resist the conviction. They Now they lash out in a physical opposition. This manifest, they gnaw at him. You know how annoying it is to hear grinding of the teeth? I've been told that I do that when, when I sleep. It doesn't bother me because I'm sleeping, but it drives my wife nuts. The grinding of the teeth, like the gears are turning. They're upset. Instead of repentance, they're filled with hatred, with indignation. It's been said that spiritual resistance of the truth often leads to a physical offensive towards the truth. But Stephen, verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazes into heaven and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen declares, he says, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. These two words, but he. It's Luke's intention to establish contrast. He he describes the reaction of the religious leaders, and then he uses these two words, but he, then he speaks of Stephen. He's setting up a contrast between the reaction of those who oppose the truth and Stephen, a man who's doing what? Who is standing for the truth. While these men were resisting the Holy Spirit, what was Stephen doing? He was full of the Holy Spirit. And this detail is important because it's kind of in some ways the verdict on Stephen. It indicated God's pleasure in his character. God's acceptance of his service. And God's equipping for what would inevitably, undoubtedly come next. Imagine the scene. Stephen, he's standing there before a group of men who are so mad at him that they're literally grinding their teeth in hatred. Not to mention, this group of men have the power and authority. They they literally, they hold Stephen's life in their hands. It's pretty ominous. It's pretty intimidating. I mean, that's an in-your-face situation, a tough proposition. And yet, in the same moment, While these men are losing their minds, what's happening with Stephen? Instead of becoming overwhelmed with a potentially hostile situation right in front of him, we're told that Stephen does what? Is he worried about them? No. We're told that he gazes up to heaven. Literally, the phrase is that he fixed his eyes upon heaven. Now now note, the language indicates that Stephen, in doing this, he was making a conscious decision. He's faced with these men, like ravenous dogs, grinding their teeth. They're upset. They hold his life in their hands. They're powerful people. They've already showed hostility towards Christianity. And in the face of this, he makes a decision. This is what Luke is painting the picture of to get his eyes off of these men and instead onto heaven. And what did he see? Luke tells us he saw in heaven the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, while this is amazing in its own right, don't overlook the incredible implications 
of Stephen's example. When you, upon standing for truth, find yourself in opposition to a world that seeks you harm, when you find yourself under the threat of a growing persecution, face to face with hostility, when you are in a situation where there is no doubt that you will suffer for the sake of Christ Jesus. And that moment, when faced with such an enemy, the key, well, the key is to get your eyes off of the situation in front of you by doing what? By fixing your eyes on heaven. You know what's interesting about, about this, this decision that Stephen made to fix his eyes on him? So he runs out into the battle. He's in the battlefield. Mano y mano, toe to toe with an enemy. What's interesting is that the only way that you can get your eyes off of the problem is to fix your eyes to heaven. And the only way you, you can fix your eyes to heaven is to do what? To get your eyes off the problem. You see, what's interesting is that these two perspectives, these vantage points, they're mutually exclusive. You're either consumed with what's in front of you or you're consumed with what's above, but you're not consumed with both at the same time. It's either one or the other, unless you're a freak and you can get your eyes to go two different directions. The vantage point, it's either heaven or it's a situation in front of you or it's a situation in front of you or it's heaven. And Stephen chose heaven, why? I think there's three reasons. You see, fixing your eyes on heaven, it helps you keep or maintain an appropriate perspective. He's got a real problem in front of him. But by fixing his eyes to heaven, he's establishing what's really important. What did he see? Stephen saw the glory of God. And what did this do? It helped him understand that no matter what would happen, no matter what this group of men would do, God was already pleased with the way he had handled himself. Stephen's not defending his own character. God had already stamped his approval upon it. When faced with a situation, realize that the people in front of you, the opposition, the foe, their opinion, their conclusion, their verdict means nothing in the grand scheme of things. That when it's all said and done, you want God to be pleased, not men. And by keeping his eyes to heaven in the midst of, of a problem enabled him to do this, it also helped him remember what was at stake. We're told that Stephen, he saw the glory of God, but also he saw Jesus. And what did this do? It helped him remember that no matter what would happen next, the way in which he handled this situation mattered. Why? for he represented Jesus. You see, he was able to look to heaven and see the glory of God. He knew that God was pleased with what he had done, with who he was. God was, had already been approving, but now he sees Jesus. And he realizes that no matter what comes next, how he handles that situation matters greatly for eternity is at stake. For Jesus is watching. Realize Stephen is there not on his own. He's been sent by Jesus. He's an ambassador of Christ. He represents more than himself or the church. 
He represents the Savior, the King, the benevolent one. And it helped him. Remember, when I'm attacked, what I do now, well, it also matters. Thirdly, fixing your eyes on heaven, it helps you access the strength to endure. So, helps you keep an appropriate perspective. It helps you remember what's at stake, but it helps you access the strength to endure. You know, it's often so much easier to find a solution to a problem when you get your eyes off the problem. Have you ever discovered that? There are times that, I, let's say I'm working on something and, I, and I'm stuck. I'm stuck. No matter how long I try to plow through it, I'm still stuck. Like, what's the best thing to do creatively in the moment? Get away. You gotta get away from it. You gotta get your eyes onto something else. Because when you return, it's easier to see the solution. You see, getting your eyes off the problem and fixing your eyes to heaven, it helps you understand what the solution is, what the remedy is. You've got a problem in front of you. You can look internally, you can look at the problem, or you can look at the solution. You can remember what's at stake. You can, you can remember uh, this, this appropriate uh, perspective, but when it's all said and done, Jesus is standing. And not only that, but he's standing at the right hand of God. You know, this detail is significant. For every other reference of the heavenly Christ has Jesus sitting. Everywhere else in Scripture, Jesus is always sitting at the right hand of the Father. Mark 14, verse 62 as an example. And yet this is the one moment where Jesus leaps to his feet. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus, but he sees Jesus standing. 19th century Scottish preacher, Will or not, he commented on this passage. He says, Jesus was not sitting as in peace and ease, but he was standing up as one who felt the pain that his member on earth was about to endure. You know, the author of Hebrews says that we have a high priest. He refers to Jesus as our high priest in heaven. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the author there tells us that as high priest, Jesus can sympathize with our weakness because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And because he is this man who can sympathize, who understands, who's been there, done that, gotten the award, therefore, let us come boldly to that throne, the throne of grace. For what purpose? That we might find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. I, I got to imagine that when Stephen looked up, and no doubt God imparted this vision to him, that in that moment, he remembered what Jesus had gone through for him. Imagine what he sees, seeing Jesus standing there. He sees a man who's as though he's a lamb who's been led to the slaughter. It, it is Jesus, but it is a Jesus who still bears in his own flesh the scars of the cross, the wounds in his head, his hands and his side. He sees Jesus in glory. And Stephen remembers that often in order to get to glory, we must first go through suffering. And he's encouraged. 
And Jesus is there saying, I got you, bud. He's rooting him on. It's amazing what the human spirit can endure, can persevere through, if we have someone there cheering us along, isn't it? Just a little exhortation, a little encouragement, a little attaboy. And it's amazing what we can do. Now, following this vision, Stephen declares for the whole assembly to hear. <laughs> One thing to see this vision. It's another thing to make it clear what it is you're seeing in front of a group of men that are really upset with you. He says, look, as if they could see it. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, in using this phrase, the Son of Man, it's as though Stephen is holding out a piece of red meat to the pack of dogs that, that nothing's holding them back. I mean, he's giving them what they want. You see this phrase, Son of Man, and using it, Stephen was attributing a sacred messianic title that was used by Daniel the prophet. And whom was he using it for? He was using it and applying it directly to Jesus. Which you should note that using this phrase in such a way with a group of religious men who had already rejected Jesus, well, that was all they would need to convict him of blasphemy. Verse 57, well, they cry out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now, in response to this declaration of Jesus being the son of man, these religious leaders go nuts. Like, they lose their minds. Like, religious formality flies out the window. And what comes next can only be described as pure and utter chaos. This is the scene before us. First, they cried out with a loud voice. The word Luke uses literally means to croak. Like, it was to gasp. It was to croak. It's also a, a word that can be used to describe the cry or the craw of a, of a raven. In unison, there's this visceral screaming that takes place, this crawling, and they stop their ears. This word stopped is interesting. It, it literally means to hold together with restraint. So here they are, they're yelling out, they're crying out, and they're literally putting their hands up to their head, up to their ears. The word it means to hold together with constraint. It, it described the incarceration of a prisoner. In essence, they're physically refusing to allow themselves to hear anything else of what Stephen might have to say. So they're crying out and they're stopping their ears and they're running at him with one accord. Literally, in the, in the text, this phrase, ran at him, should be better translated ran upon him. In this moment of chaos, the entire council, they bum-rushed Stephen. This phrase, that they ran at him, it's used in another passage of Scripture. If you recall in Mark 5, verse 13, Jesus, he casts some demons out of, out of a man. And the demons want some kind of inhabitation. So what does Jesus do? He casts them out into a group of swine. And because the demons and the swine, it doesn't really mix very well, the swine go crazy to the point that they lose their minds. They go running off of a cliff into the Sea of Galilee. Like this 
uncontrollable kind of rage. It's the same phrase we find here. And what do they do? They take him, they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. Stephen, he's immediately consumed, and this wave of violence that's flowing his direction, utterly defenseless, he's forcibly taken out of the court, down some back streets, and he's thrown out of the city in accordance with the law. And then they proceed to stone him to death. Now, the Romans executed citizens, citizens of Rome, by beheading. Quick, painless, efficient. Rome executed non-citizens by crucifixion. But the Jews executed capital punishment by stoning. It's interesting that while the Hebrew people had lost their right to execute their own in 7 AD, which is why, if you recall, uh, they were so hesitant in their dealings with Jesus, they had to get Pilate's permission. They had convicted him of blasphemy, but they couldn't execute him. Pilate needed to do that because they weren't allowed to. And yet now, a couple years later, is there any formality here? Do they take him to Pilate? No, they readily execute Stephen. And some scholars have kind of pointed, like, how do you explain this? How, how can you provide a remedy? Remedy. If you recall Pilate, when he consented to the death of Jesus, he, he consented knowing Jesus was innocent, but he couldn't afford politically another revolt by the Jews. But fast forward a few years after further conflict, in 36 AD, Pilate is called back to Rome. He's removed from his position. There are those who speculate that the reason the Jews took matters here with Stephen into their own hands came back to the likelihood that this particular situation took place possibly between a transition of Roman governors. Pilate's been summoned back. The new Roman governor hasn't arrived. This takes place. They don't have anyone to seek permission by, so they take him out and stone him. It's a wonderful idea. I disagree because that happened in 36 AD, but this probably took place more like 34 AD. I'm of the opinion that the stoning of Stephen was completely illegal. Like any rational thought set up in this passage, like do you think, like are they, are they thinking this through, these religious leaders? No, when you're crying like a raven, stopping up your ears and bum rushing a guy, like all thought has gone out. Like you're just purely reacting. And I think that in this situation, things either happen too quickly for the Romans to intervene, or Pilate simply turned a blind eye because he couldn't afford any more issues with the Jews. It is possible that the date could be more like 36 AD and Pilate being moved, that could provide the explanation. I'll give you two. Stoning. If you YouTube stoning, you'll get a little bit of a taste in regards to what kind of execution this is. If you're queasy in the stomach, I would advise you not to Google or YouTube stoning. It's horrific. Like, it's horrific. You see, Stephen, he's taken outside of the city by the same vengeful mob. And what do they do? They throw him out, and they all start picking up stones 
and throwing stones at poor Stephen. And this made sense because if you've ever been to that part of the world, there are a lot of stones. So it's easy to reload quickly. So Stephen is there, and his natural reflexes reflexes would initially give him some kind of like defense, you know, like a twisted game of dodgeball. But over time, one stone would land after another. He would become exhausted. They've got him surrounded. They're pummeling him. At some point, he, he would just be brought to his knees because of the onslaught. And this is the part of a stoning that most people don't understand or don't realize. Once you fall to your knees, once Stephen took a knee, he was now in a completely indefensible and vulnerable position. It's hard to dodge anything on your knees. But at that point, there would be someone within the mob, often assigned, who would quickly approach Stephen with a large stone, and he would crush his head. Now, whether or not this, the kill shot resulted in unconsciousness or not, at that moment, once you fell to your knee and you get clocked upside the head, you're now no longer able to fend off the barrage of stones that would immediately follow. Death happens very, very quickly. According to the law, stoning, it was designed so that no one individual could be identified as the executioner. It was capital punishment in such a way that it was actually done literally by the entire community. But we're told in verse 58 that the witnesses, they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The witnesses. The witnesses. According to the law, those who made the accusations against Stephen were required to throw the first stones. The idea behind this contingency in the law was that it would kind of defer false accusations. Like it would be a deterrent, a safeguard against an unjust conviction. It would be one thing to falsely accuse someone. It would be another thing to brutally stone them to death. But the witnesses were required to participate. And what's amazing to me is that the very men who knew that they had propagated a lie concerning Stephen, these very men who knew the accusations were false, they were still willing to brutally take the life of an innocent man. I'm all right with the guilty going down, but if you know someone's innocent, that goes to a level of, of depravity that's not often seen. It would appear likely as an explanation that the stoning, that killing Stephen in such a way had been the intention all along. That the reason they brought the accusations was that this is what they wanted to do. So here's Stephen. He's taking a pounding. And Luke tells us that as he's taking a pounding, rock after rock after rock, what's he doing? 
He's calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the tense is that this is something that's repetitive, that he's repeating it over and over and over again. You know, when many of us would be appealing for mercy, the mercy of the executioners, <laughs> while there might be a few of us that would be levying our own accusations against those who were meaning us harm, Stephen, he's never taken his eyes off of heaven, has he? Now he's kept his eyes fixed there. He recognizes his fate has been sealed, and so courageously he echoes this, the words of Jesus, right? The same words used by Jesus on the cross, receive or literally take hold of my spirit. Luke then tells us that Stephen knelt down. He's no longer able to defend himself. This faithful servant knows that the end is near. I'm sure through blood and, blood and sweat, he can see a man quickly approaching. He knows the kill shot is coming. And so with one final burst of energy, Luke tells us he cries out with a loud voice. Fire, rain down from heaven and consume my... No. No, he says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. That's amazing. I think it's, it's in some ways convicting because that's not my attitude towards my enemies, is it? Those who have meant me harm... Lord, forgive them. It's not part of my, like, conscious awareness. Strike them, kill them, destroy them, or at least make them miserable. Boils, I pray that from time to time. It's happened in the Old Testament. That'd be a, a good way to go. Speaking elegant, Zach, and you wake up and you have boils all over you. Stephen, this is not his attitude at all. He's fixed his eyes on Jesus, hasn't he? And, and he echoes what Jesus says, Lord, receive my spirit. But he also says exactly what Jesus said again from the cross. Jesus' final words. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen. He asks that God would show these men mercy. You know, it's evident that the very faith Stephen demonstrated in life, he was also demonstrating in death. You know, you learn a lot about the way a person dies. There was any question who Stephen really was, who this man really was, what being filled with the Holy Spirit can yield. A man no different from you and I, don't forget. A man who's not an apostle, wasn't part of the original 120. A guy who just came to Jesus in faith like you started serving at his church, became a deacon, went out witnessing, finds himself in this situation. This man, it's awesome. We're told that he fell asleep. And please understand that this phrase was a way that the writers of Scripture Describe the death of a believer. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Peter 3, as just a couple of examples of this. There are those that say that this is an example of the doctrine of soul sleep. That upon death, a believer enters this state, this quasi-state of unconsciousness before there's 
the resurrection of the dead. Now, while it's true the physical body is laid in the grave, only to be later called to life upon the physical resurrection, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Scripture is abundantly clear that upon death, for the believer, your soul immediately ascends to heaven to be with God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As soon as Stephen breathed his last, as soon as he lost consciousness, the neurons quit firing, his heart quit beating. When they declared death, Stephen's soul was already with Jesus while his body remained on earth. There's an interesting passage of scripture that I think uh, validates this, this, this doctrine, this position against soul sleep. But in 1 Kings, or 17, 1 Kings chapter 17, following the death of this little boy, we're told that Elijah, interesting, he stretches himself on the child three times. He cries out to the Lord, says, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. So the child's dead. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him and he was revived. So once again, the child dies, his soul departs. Bummer for the kid. He's got to come back. Like I think, like the guy my heart hurts for the most in Scripture, you know, you're reading through the Gospel of John, and you read of Lazarus coming back from the dead, and you're like, dang, four days in heaven, and you could have come back to this mess? Like what a bummer. And he'd die again. Only God died twice. Now, Stephen, we look at this story, tragic result, he dies. He's martyred, loses his life for Jesus. And as I, in my own study time, tried to move forward into chapter 8, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm left wondering, like, why would God send Stephen a gifted and faithful servant into a situation knowing full well that he'd lose his life in the process. Am I the only one that kind of gets to a passage like this and think, what? Like this is the first guy to die in the book of Acts. This is the first Christian recorded death after the ascension of Jesus. And you get to this point and you're like, wait a second. This isn't how the story was supposed to end. Stephen, this guy just like me, he goes in, he's valiant, he's courageous, he's bold. He's looking at authority, the status quo, he's challenging it, he's laying it down. You uncircumcised and hard of ears and then there's supposed to be a revival. And Stephen is supposed to go on tour. And he's supposed to be writing books. And him and James Dobson are supposed to take, you get to this point and you're just like, oh, this stinks. God, what? Why? You know, because of our Western sensibilities, it's a reality that the death of Stephen, it's a tough pill to swallow. Like, I grapple with the question of why his life had to end prematurely. Why couldn't, 
Have God granted one of those cool moments, like when Jesus has enemies running at him? He like goes invisible and walks through them out to the other side and like fully, like why couldn't that happen with Stephen? I mean, God's powerful enough. Why did his life end prematurely? I mean, really, in my mind, if you kind of work this out, you kind of get to Acts 7 and, and you think, well, maybe this story presents nothing more than the tragic, uh, the tragic tale of unachieved or even wasted potential. It's the only sermon he teaches that we know of. No one converts and he dies. What a waste. You know, while this is a natural reaction when we find ourselves coping or trying to cope with the untimely death of a great hero of the faith, this perspective, while genuine, it loses sight of three key realities. And this is, these are the things I had to remind myself as I'm studying and working myself through chapter seven, and I get to this moment where he's stoned to death just for being faithful. It's not like he was in sin. He's just following Jesus, being his hands and feet, letting the Holy Spirit live through him. He's doing everything right, and he dies brutally. And for me, I had to come back to three realities. And the first one, it's a little controversial, but it's true. Death is a reward for the follower of Jesus. You see, I process this like what happened to Stephen's a bummer for Stephen. It's, it's not a bummer for Stephen in the slightest. Like in this moment, he dies and he's with Jesus. He's out of this place. You know, if you fully comprehend what it means to follow Jesus, then you understand the reality that you died long ago. And if you don't understand this reality, you need to pay attention to what I'm gonna say. Scripture teaches that when you surrender your life to Jesus, that life is no longer your own and this earth is no longer your home. Remember Jesus told the rich young ruler, Sell everything you have, take up your cross, and follow me. There's an understanding. I died with Jesus. And the life that I have is in Jesus, not in myself. Let me give you three passages of Scripture. We'll put them on the screens. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ. No longer I who live. Catch it? But what? But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Colossians 3.1-4, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth, for what? You died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Read Romans 6 as well. Paul speaks extensively about this concept. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of Stephen, and in doing so, we've talked a lot about what it means to be a witness. But you know what's interesting about this word witness? It's the same Greek word that we actually get 
our word martyr from. A witness is a martyr. You see, a witness describes a person who is willing to die for another, or in this context, a person who has already laid down their life for Jesus. In Acts 1, Jesus called us to what? To be witnesses to me. Meaning martyrdom isn't something we do. It's something we surrender to. I'm dead. Zach Adams is dead. Whatever benefit I am, I am for Jesus and he alone. And it's this reality. Stephen as a witness, he's, you can't martyr him. He's already martyred. He's already a witness. And because he has this mindset, he has boldness. And he's also very dangerous. I mean, how do you kill a man who's already dead? How do you take the life of a man who's already given that life away? Stephen understood that death wasn't the end of life, but was instead the very moment he'd finally start living. Stephen understood that in death, he really had nothing to lose and had everything to gain. These men couldn't take his life. Jesus held it. He'd never die. He'd be transformed into glory. And in the moment his physical dwelling breathed his last, he was given this glory and rewarded with heavenly treasure. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, we're told, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Then he says, Now he who has prepared us for this thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So when I look at this passage and I'm like, Stephen dies? That's the end? That's the story? You're kidding me? I have to remind myself, no, that's not the end of the story at all. Matter of fact, that's the greatest moment of that man's life. Like literally, it is the greatest moment of his entire existence. Because now he's in heaven. Now, I'm sure there's loss for us. Loss for his friends, the other church members. But for Stephen, God was rewarding him for faithfulness. Death wasn't taking anything away. The second thing I have to kind of remind myself about, and we've talked about this before, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of work through it quickly, but that God evaluates success based on faithfulness. Like, sadly, we assume Stephen's life was kind of a wa wasted potential because we're often more focused on what a person accomplishes for Christ rather than who that person is in Christ. We, even in our, our 21st century Christian culture, we have a tendency to exalt results over integrity, accolades over character. Stephen was rewarded with none other than heaven itself, not because of great, some great ministry he started, not because of a movement he initiated or even a soul he saved, because we're not told of any. Stephen was rewarded simply because Jesus stood up cheered him on, and then said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of, of your Lord. You look at that man, and you see death, you're like, ah. Oh. You see wasted potential, you're like, ah. Oh. But that was what he was designed for. That was the moment he had been created for. That's what God, the king, had sent his servant to do. And our job is not to determine the activity. 
but to be faithful in it. So Stephen is rewarded in death. And in this moment, what takes place? He's found very faithful. He was extraordinarily successful. But then there's the third thing that I have to remind myself, and we'll close with this, that there is a divine purpose behind everything that God does. You know, I don't find it to be an accident that in the religious leader's rejection of Stephen, we find all three members of the Godhead represented. Did you notice that? We're told that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, saw Jesus standing, where? The right hand of God. Now, this is significant because from an overarching, a big picture perspective of Scripture, the act of rejecting and killing Stephen placed these Jewish leaders into a very precarious situation. Before sending Jesus, God had sent to the religious leaders of Israel many prophets, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, among others, before he finally sent John the Baptist. But the sad story is that the Jews rallied around, accepted any of them? No, they stubbornly rejected the lot of them. These men were already guilty of rejecting the witness of the Father. Then God sent to Israel his only begotten son. And Jesus lived among the people. He taught the people. He performed signs and wonders for the people. But tragically, in the end, he too, they rejected and killed. So they were guilty of rejecting the father and they were guilty of rejecting the witness of the son. So it's not an accident that the book of Acts transitions from the earthly ministry of Jesus to the arrival of the third member of the, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, with then what? The first seven chapters of Acts, focusing specifically on God's revelation by the Spirit through the church to the Hebrew people. Jesus even told his followers before ascending to heaven in Acts 1.8, receive the power of the Holy Spirit when it's come upon you to be witnesses of me first in Jerusalem, second Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. You see, after initially receiving the Holy Spirit, Jesus sends to these religious leaders whom? He sends to them Peter and John on two occasions. And while their message could not have been any more forthcoming, did the religious leaders respond to their testimony? No. They threatened and they warned them to keep silent, but they didn't lay a hand, right? They didn't kill them. Roughed them up a little, but that was it. So after two failed attempts, so you rejected the father, you rejected the son, strike one, strike two, what happens? Jesus not only sends to them Stephen, but he miraculously affirms Stephen's message in the same way he had affirmed Moses's. He affirms the new covenant in the same way he affirmed the old because Stephen's face looked like that of an angel. It radiated, just like Moses coming out of, off of Mount Sinai. And yet, even with all this, the father, the son, Peter and John twice, now Stephen, his face is glowing. All of this, they killed the messenger of God, which means it's become apparent, evident, that these men had chosen to actively reject, reject the witness of the Spirit. Why did God send Stephen, knowing these religious leaders would kill him? I'm convinced Stephen, he served a strategic and divine purpose in God's plan. This is why. For he presented Israel 
a final opportunity to repent before God sent judgment. I think Stephen should be on the Mount Rushmore of the prophets. That Stephen, in many ways, is old school, Old Testament, like Jeremiah and Isaiah of old. That he sent to Israel, like all of the prophets before, saying, there is judgment coming, and you need to wake up. It's unique. In many ways, I'm of the opinion that Stephen was God's final prophet to Israel. Final prophet to Judah. You know, it's not an accident that Stephen's indictment focused not only on the men standing before him, but on the nation as a whole. He says, as your fathers had done. You see, what made their rejection of Stephen so devastating is that they were in actuality rejecting the final revelation of God. And please pay attention, because this is so dangerous. While you can reject the revelation of the Father, and you can reject the revelation of the Son, once you oppose the work of God's Holy Spirit through the church, nothing else follows. There's no longer hope. You see, with this in mind, it should come as no surprise that following Acts 7, the entire book of Acts transitions immediately away from what God was doing in Jerusalem to where? Chapters 8 and 12, with the gospel going to Judea and Samaria, and chapters 13 and 28, talking about how the gospel spread across the world. Even the Apostle Paul, and we'll get to this later, he would find himself before the Jewish people in Acts 22 and the same group of religious leaders in Acts 23. But if you read those passages carefully, Paul is never presented an opportunity to present the gospel. When he's talking to the people, he blurts out Gentile and they go crazy. And then he talks about the resurrection before he can ever talk about Jesus and they go crazy. Paul's never given the opportunity to present the gospel. One could rightly argue that the fate of Israel had been sealed when they rejected and killed Stephen. Now, before we close, I want to give you a warning for anyone that's here rejecting, resisting the witness of the Holy Spirit through a believer, a friend, someone that's been sharing their faith and telling you about Jesus, and you've been resisting it. Please understand if you're waiting for God to do something else, you'll be sorely disappointed. Nothing else follows. The Father worked in the Old Testament. Jesus worked in those three and a half years. But today, if you want the revelation of God, it's by the Holy Spirit, through His Word, through us, through Christians. And please note, in death, the believer has nothing to lose and everything to gain. But for the unbeliever, you either have everything to lose or nothing to lose, but you still have nothing to gain by resisting Jesus. And this morning, if you find yourself facing opposition because you were daring enough to stand for the truth, to be a witness for Jesus, a witness in your world, please consider death will be the most glorious moment in your entire existence. God only cares about you being faithful and always know that God works all things for the good of, for those who love him and those that are called according to his purposes. And so, Father, we ask...